So this is one of six times, seven times in the New Testament where Jesus heals on the Sabbath. And I don't know about you, if you know this or not, but you weren't supposed to do any work on the Sabbath. That included healing people. And uh, um, so that's some of the stuff that uh, the religious elites who interpreted the Bible literally would get mad at Jesus for. Um, so did you notice in our text that there was no verse 4? Um, there is no verse 4 in what we read. In some translations, uh, the King James, for instance, includes the second part of the verse, uh, verse 3, and then verse 4. All translations include the multitude of people lying by the pool, the paralyzed, the blind, the crippled. But the King James also adds to this group uh, the people who, quote, waited for the moving of the water, for an angel went down at a certain season to the pool and troubled the water. And whoever so then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in was made whole for whatever disease he had. And then it continues with this certain man, so forth and so on. So why does the King James have it and not our new revised standard version? Well, part of it, so we're going to get uh, we're going to get a little history on how the Bible was created and then we're going to get a little archaeology lesson. There are some people who think that the Bible was just handed down from God to us. Um, inerrant. Uh, uh, that's not the case. Uh, human beings wrote the book um, and added their own little ideas and images and stuff. So we're going to get a quick, how did we get the Bible we have story here. So the King James Version comes to us from what is known as Textus Recepticus, which is Latin for received texts. There's Erasmus. In the early 1500s, Erasmus of Rotterdam, who was a Dutch priest, a humanist, and a social critic, published the Textus Recepticus. His main motivation was to create a fresh Latin text. So he collected all the Vulgate manuscripts that he could find. So the Vulgate was a manuscript that was translated by St. Jerome and is what the quote-unquote Catholic Bibles are based on. Erasmus' motivation for creating the Greek text was not clear, but some believe that it was so that he could prove the superiority of the Latin texts. For his Greek, uh, let's see, for his Greek manuscripts, he had only a small number of medieval manuscripts to work with. And in some instances, he had only one, like the final verse of Revelation, for example. He didn't have any manuscripts for quite a bit of it, and in that case, he would uh, back-translate it. Uh, he would sort of just assume what he thought it meant, and then he would back-translate it into Greek. And that is the Textus Recepticus. That's how it was created. St. Jerome translated scriptures into Latin, called it the Vulgate. Erasmus comes along later, translates that Latin translation into Greek, and calls it the Textus Recepticus. And it is the basis for our 
New Testament, Second Testament, that sort of thing. So in the 19th century, more ancient manuscripts were found, some dating back to within 150 years of the early New Testament times. The most important one was the Codex Sinaiticus. It was written in the mid-4th century, and it's the earliest complete copy of the Christian New Testament. It was found in Sinai in a monastery in 1844. So, newer translations of the Bible, the New International Version, uh, the New Revised Standard Version, the English Standard Version, among those, those were translated from these more ancient manuscripts, and the more ancient manuscripts don't include verse 4. So that's a long way of saying, why is there no verse 4, right? So one of the criteria for determining the authenticity of a biblical text is its age. If you have two versions of text, the oldest one is likely to be the most accurate. Stories get added and embellished over time. Think about any story that you've heard over the years. Bit by bit, things get added, people fill in the blanks in the original storytelling. Scholars think that verse 4 might have been a little note in the margin that the scribes put in, and over time, as it got copied and recopied, it was just added to the text. Or, perhaps, the text was added to explain the stirring that the man mentions in verse 7. Experts who study texts for a living have noted that the language in verse 4 is unusual for John. It's wording, it's phrasing, they don't seem to fit with the rest of the gospel. And that's why it's always good to have a couple of different translations. Translations, not interpretations, there's a difference. So when you're studying, if something like this comes up, there's probably a good reason for it. But there's no conspiracy. Various Bible translations don't all have the same basis. No translation should be valued over another, nor should any translation be completely dismissed. And then every once in a while, archaeologists find evidence of what's described in the Bible. The description of the sheep gate by a pool has been accepted to be fairly accurate, but the part about the five sides made historians wonder about the accuracy. Most thought that the description was a literary invention by the author to put forth some sort of metaphorical representation, maybe about the five books of the Hebrew Bible or something like that. And then in the middle of the 19th century, there was an archaeologist by the last name of Schick who discovered a pool that he said was the pool in our story. Further excavations in 1964 revealed other features and confirmed that Schick's pool was actually the pool at Bethsaida. These further excavations have shown that there is a sluice that moves water from one pool to another, and this sluice sort of created the bubbles, and this bubbling is probably what caused the stirring in our reading. That's a picture of the sewer system. Those are clay pipes that are used for the aqueduct. That is a water channel in Bethsaida. And as water is pushed through, that's where it stirs, probably. That's a picture of the pool itself. And this 
map will give you some sort of an idea of where the pool was located in the town. And this is the picture of the pool and hidden amid a jumble of ruins, only a part of the southern pool is visible right there. So that is the pool of Bethsaida. So now you have some idea about the pool. Author Mary Shore notes that this story, this healing story at the pool is like almost every other healing story. These stories operate on two different levels. The character involved is thinking in physical terms and Jesus is speaking in spiritual terms. Take for instance the woman at the well. Jesus talks about living water and never going thirsty and she's talking about Jesus not being able to pull up water because he doesn't have a bucket. Or in his discussion with Nicodemus, talking about being born again, Jesus talks about having a spiritual awakening. And Nicodemus wonders, quote, how can a person, once he is old, crawl up into his mother's womb and be born again? And here, by this pool, Jesus asks if the man wants to be healed, and the man focuses on the fact that he can't get into the rippling water. Now, on the surface, this story could be all about self-pity. I have been sick for a very long time, for 38 years, and I come here and nobody puts me in the pool. People walk around me, they step over me, they see me crawling to the pool, but they don't help me. And by the time I can finally get there, the water is still or somebody gets there ahead of me. Or us in our modern, you know, we have our own sort of paralysis. You know, Jesus, I am just so busy. There is so much that I have to do. I have a job, I have kids, I have school and the bills and the soccer practice, and by the time I get home, I am just exhausted. Seems like we don't have enough time. Our days are filled with just trying to make ends meet, and we don't have time to pay attention. And if we do have time to pay attention, we don't have the energy because everything seems so overwhelming. But this story is not so much a story about self-pity as it is a matter-of-fact statement about the way things are. The man never says he doesn't want to be healed. He says by the time he can get there, other people have gotten in front of him. And the text doesn't say exactly, but since it does say that this was a festival time, maybe this man is making a yearly pilgrimage. Or maybe because he can't travel, he stays by the pool waiting for this miraculous bubbling. So, more than self-pity, this man is just really persistent. He keeps showing up, probably thinking that one more time it's not going to work. And by thinking perhaps that some slim chance is better than no chance at all, he shows up. No display of faith, no real request for help, just showing up where he's seen other people be cured, doing what he's seen all those other people do. His persistence reminds me of my alcoholic friends who have tried and tried and tried to get sober year after year after year but just can't. Or all those decades I tried to quit smoking. We just keep trying and trying and trying to quit. Pretty soon we just quit trying. Or those of us on diets over and over and over again, we just keep trying. 
we probably keep trying over and over and over again because we're thinking about a cure. Right? We're thinking about not drinking or not smoking or we're thinking about losing weight or keeping our house clean or whatever it is. We're sort of like Nicodemus and the woman at the well or the man at the pool. But what we're offered is not just a simple cure. What we're offered is healing. Psychiatrists and psychologists will tell you that drinking or smoking or overcoming fits of rage are simply things that we use to cover up underlying spiritual sicknesses. So what God offers us is not just a nicotine patch or a membership to Weight Watchers or a seat at an AA meeting. What God offers us is a way to get to the root of the problem, have a spiritual awakening, to drink living water, to be born again, to take up our mats and walk, to be whole, not just physically whole, spiritually whole. Do you want to be healed? Well, when I go, somebody always gets there before me. Do you want to be healed? I have so much else to do. The good news is, you don't have to do it alone. As long as we go to the pool, tired or not, believing or not, thinking it'll work or knowing that it won't, as long as we go to the pool, God will show up. God will do it for us. But we have to keep going to the pool. And I've heard it described this way. God's grace will open the door, but it's up to me to walk through it. Author Kyle Childress says that to be made whole means to be remembered, reconnected with God and with God's people and with God's creation. And God is in the midst of us, healing us, not requiring a confession of faith or a demonstration that we want it. God is simply offering us healing and then telling us to take up our mats and walk. Amen.